Thank you, Jonathan. Good morning. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, We have, for the last year and a half, been working our way through the Gospel of Matthew, and we're almost done. We have four more weeks. But before we leave the Gospel, there is a section of teaching in chapters 24 and 25 that we skipped over in our Passion series headed to Easter, where Jesus turns his attention to the second coming and the end of the age. And so this is going to be the last in our little mini-series in Matthew. Uh, We're going to talk for the next four weeks about the second coming of Jesus Now, every month when we recite the Apostles' Creed, we confess this to be true, that we believe Jesus is coming again one day to judge the living and the dead. That's an article of our faith, that we believe he's not here, but he will come again to judge the living and the dead and to bring us home. Now, I have to be honest with you, I'm very hesitant about a series on the second coming, (laughs) even a four-week series on the second coming, Uh, because people tend to get very dogmatic about their particular view of how things are going to end in my opinion, far more dogmatic than the scripture allows, and I'm not going to be dogmatic, which is probably going to disappoint a lot of you, especially if you're here and you've done a lot of study in Bible prophecy. I'm, I, can, I just want to tell you now, I'm not going to meet your expectations, uh, and there might even be points of disagreement, and so one of the things I'm going to do, this is, how, this is how nervous I am about this, okay? Not today, because it's Mother's Day and we all want to go eat lunch, and so we're going to get out of here as fast as we can. Next week, starting next week, for the three weeks of this, uh, of this series, beginning next week, uh, at about 11 o'clock or as soon as people clear out, I'm going to be down front. And if you have questions, we're going to do a question and answer time after every sermon. Because I anticipate there being questions and confusion, especially this morning, because this passage this morning is the, pass, is the Bible passage where preachers go to die. <laughs> Just going to tell you. It is. And, so, but we, and, I'm, and I'm sad we can't do it today, but starting next week, we're going to do that, okay? Now, my methodology in this series, I'm not concerned with timelines and how contemporary historical events fulfill prophecy. I admit, I admit, I'm letting everything, I admit I'm very suspicious of those things. And the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is our governing uh, body of theology teaches very clearly that God desires the time and the events surrounding Jesus' second coming to remain unknown in order that we will remain in a perpetual state of readiness for his return. And so that's my concern. How do we get ready for the day when he comes? How are we to live today in light of the day of the Lord, this Bible teaching that God's going to come back, Jesus is going to come back, and we will stand before him in judgment, to give account of how we've lived our lives, I fully believe it to be my job to prepare you for that day. And that's my goal. Uh, The Bible, the prophecy in the Bible, the purpose of Bible prophecy, I don't believe, is to give a detailed account of how and when things are going to end so that a month prior to the end, you can put up billboards and stand on street corners and yell at people to repent. Don't believe that's the purpose. I believe the purpose of passages like the one we're going to look at this morning about the second coming in the Bible are to encourage us and instruct us in how to live right now, today, faithfully, until he comes. That's all i got to say about that, as far as Gump would say. (laughs) And so let's turn to the scripture. I would encourage you to read along with me in your worship folder. However, you probably need to pull out bifocals or a magnifying glass to be able to see the print there. And so it'll be, print, it'll be on the screen behind me, and you can follow along in your Bible as well, Matthew 24, 
verses 1 through 36, okay? Let's read this passage together that Jesus begins to open up these things to us here. Now, beginning in verse 1, Jesus left the temple and was going, and don't miss these first three verses, was going away. When his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple, but he answered them, you see all of these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be one left here, excuse me, not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And he sat, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming in the close of the age? And Jesus answered to them, see that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See to it that none of you are alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All of these are but the beginning of the birth pains. They will deliver you over up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom, which will will be proclaimed throughout the whole world, is a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house, and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for the women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it, for false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform Great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. In other words, nobody will be able to miss it. Wherever the corpse is, there the falters will gather. Verse 29, immediately. After the tribulation of those days, then the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all of the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So alas, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Now listen to this phrase. This is important. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And then there's a change. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. This is God's word. So, typical feel-good Mother's Day sermon text. Right? <laughs> Believe me, I felt that this week. Now, I need to, I need to, uh, we need to get inside of this a little bit. And my job is, because this is, what in the world is that about? Right? And if you're new to Christianity, if you're not used to 
reading the Bible, you, you're probably confused even in the reading of it. There's a lot of confusion about this passage of Scripture. And 2,000 years later, it's very difficult for us to get inside it. I mean, what does this have to do with my life? And that's my starting place. That's my starting place right there because I think what Jesus is teaching his disciples and us here has everything to do with life. And here's what I think, okay? Let me, let me just give you my, my assumption. This passage in Matthew 24 is about what it is like to live in between the time of Jesus' life and ministry and the time of his second coming. It is not primarily a passage about the future. It is a passage about how to live in the present while we wait for the future. That's my assumption. Okay? Now let me do a little work to show you why I say that. If you look in verse 1, you'll see the context. The context is very important here, okay? And we're told in verse 1 that Jesus and his disciples are in the temple. They're they are, they've been walking around the Temple Mount. Now, if you go back, we, it's unfortunate we can't go back, but if you have a Bible and you want to go back to, verse, to verses 37 through 39 of, of Matthew 23, Matthew 23 is this long litany of, of Jesus just slamming the religious leaders. And it ends up at the very end of all of his condemnation of the, of the religious leaders. He says, the blood of all the prophets and all the martyrs that you killed is going to come upon this generation. And then he turns to Jerusalem, and you remember this probably. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you to me as a mother hen gathers her chicks, uh, but you would not. And then he makes a statement in verse 39, your house is left desolate. And then here, in, in, well, let me say, in verse 36, 35 and 36 of Matthew 25, all the righteous blood shed on the earth will come upon this generation. And then they go into the temple precinct, and the disciples, Jesus says, look at the temple. It's going to be destroyed. Every stone's going to be dismantled piece by piece. And the disciples are astonished, and they say, when is this, verse 3, tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and the close of the end of the age? But what we have to see is there's a time frame reference here that has to that has to affect our interpretation of this passage because just like in twenty three thirty six, Jesus says all these things will come upon this generation. In Matthew twenty four verse thirty five, look down there. He says, "Truly, this generation will not pass away until these things take place." So the typical understanding here. Okay, I'm just trying to get us to the good part of the sermon. I've got to get through this. Uh, to get to get us to where we can talk for a minute. But the typical understanding of this passage, at least in the, in the denomination and the traditions that I grew up in, is that it, it has some reference to the second coming and to the end of the age. So, depending upon what your view is, there's some period of time in the future surrounding the end of the age and the second coming where Jesus is going to come and there's going to be some things that unfold. And this is really what that's talking about. And I want to say carefully, very carefully, that while I agree that everything that is said here has reference or application to the second coming because of the time frame references both in 2336 and 2435. It seems obvious that Jesus also seems to, to see some sort of fulfillment of these events within the lifetime of his disciples. He says before that generation, a generation would typically be about 40 years. So if it's 33 AD or somewhere in the, in the vicinity of 33 AD, sometime before 70 or 75 AD, Jesus says, these things are going to happen, and there just so happens to be a historical event that makes sense of all of this. In 69 AD, Rome laid siege to Jerusalem, and in 70 AD, they destroyed the temple. And so within one generation, all the things that Jesus prophesied were fulfilled. Much of what Jesus talks about here was fulfilled. Even, for example, verse 15, 
where he talks about the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. Again, notwithstanding what that might mean for the future. Uh, there was an event where Antiochus Epiphanes came into the holy city and went into the temple and sacrificed a pig on the Ark of the Covenant. Which would have been just about the most offensive thing that a Jew could possibly imagine. And it was this, it was the scene is this by the church and even my scholars today is this fulfillment of, of all of these events and of this abomination that causes desolation, this, the, the, the desecration of the temple, all of these events surrounding 70 AD. So I want to correct this typical understanding by just saying this that Jesus predicts that the temple will be destroyed. And it was in 70 AD. But if you look at verse 3 very carefully, okay? Verse 3 is really the key. The disciples asked, tell us when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? Now, if you look carefully there, Jesus has been talking to them about the temple being destroyed. They draw the conclusion, okay, well, tell us when the temple is going to be destroyed. And then look what they do. They draw the conclusion that whenever that is, it will signal the end of the age and the coming of Jesus to the earth. So they say, tell us when these things will be, and then they go on, right? And what will be the sign of your coming and the close of the end of the age? Jesus' answer in the rest of Matthew 24 is meant to do two things. To answer, number one, the first part of their question. To show them, you know, all the things surrounding the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. But number two, to also correct a misunderstanding that they've made that this would signal the return and the end of the world, and the great judgment. In other words, Jesus is saying, no, 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 don't connect the destruction of the temple with the end of the age. Those are two separate events. And that's what he's trying to show them. They see them as one single event. Jesus is trying to show them that they are, in fact, two different events. In AD 70, the temple's going to be destroyed. That would not signal his coming or the end of the world. That would come later. And so there was going to be a time in between the two that they were going to have to endure. In between his, you know, the destruction of the temple in 70 and the second coming, and that's what this passage is about. He's trying to help them see how they live in between the time. And we live in between that time too. We believe, as we've said over and over again, in the already and the not yet, that Jesus' gospel is the gospel of kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, and it's broken into human history. It's here. It's present. You can enter into it. What the Bible calls eternal life, or even heaven, is not something out there in the distant future. Heaven, eternal life, is something that has broken into human history. It's pushed forward into the present, and we can enter into it, and we can experience it, and we can live with Jesus in it. And yet we still wait. And so we live in this in-between. And how do we live in this in-between? And that's really what I think this passage is about. All of that. So that we can see these three points in your outline. That I think what Jesus gives us here, as we think about what it means for us to live in between the time, he gives us the condition that we will face, the commands of how we, how we live faithfully there, and then he also gives us the courage. And I just want to quickly, because I know we're coming to the end, you're thinking, holy smokes, we're never going to get to lunch. We have a reservation with mom at 11.15. He's got to be quiet, but we need to go through these things together quickly, okay? So let's just start with the condition. And here's what I want you to see. When Jesus describes what it will be like in between the destruction of the temple and his second coming, between the first and second coming, he uses this word three times. It's the word tribulation. Verse 9, verse 21, verse 29. Tribulation. Now, the word means anguish or trouble or pain. I mean, Jesus promises that life is going to be hard and painful and there'll be much to be sad about. And I thought about that this week. You know, that's really hard. For us to get our head around because we are so affluent. I mean, we are so insulated against 
the kinds of trouble people all over the world experience every single day. I mean, not a single person in this room woke up this morning and said, I wonder, you know, I wonder where lunch is going to come from. Right, moms? If you go home this afternoon and one of your kids gets sick, you can call the doctor, you can take them to them, you can get them medicine. You don't have to wonder if the fever is going to take the child's life. I mean, we really do live so insulated from the kind of worry and trouble that most people, most people in the world experience. And what it does is it creates an illusion so that when things are hard, we believe that something must be wrong because it's not supposed to be that way. I mean, we really believe. We, Ashley and I were talking about this on the beach last weekend. We believe that life is supposed to be our own personal corona commercial. Right? I mean, that's what we believe. I mean, that's what, that's what I'm working for. It's supposed to be easy. It's supposed to be trouble-free. And then if it isn't, either, okay, either I've done something wrong, which typically leads to despair. More often, you've done something wrong, or President Obama has, or the Congress has, or somebody has, and that leads to anger. And so whether it's despair or anger, we don't think life is supposed to be hard. Can I just say to you, as your friend, Jesus disagrees. He says, expect tribulation, and here's a brief list, verse 6 through 12. Wars, natural disasters like famines and earthquakes, persecution, relational conflict, emotional distress, selfish and corrupt leadership, both political and spiritual, lawlessness, verse 12, which means human sin and wickedness prevailing in society, and on and on. We live in a sin-ravaged world. We are sin-ravaged. And this is the consensus of the Bible from beginning to end. Expect trouble. Now, isn't this just the typical feel-good Mother's Day sermon? Right? I mean, it isn't feel-good, but it's a great Mother's Day sermon, and here's why. You ready? Oh, I've been waiting all week. I can't wait. This is great. I yelled in my office this week when I, when I came to this. All the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, God cursed humanity for their sin. And the curse that the woman had to bear, if you remember the passage, is this. Listen to these words. I will multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Now, can I tell you, I've been there four times. And there's a great deal of pain involved in bringing a kid into the world. I mean, it's not pretty, right? There's blood and sweat and curses hailed at the poor man that got that woman in the predicament to begin with. <laughs> you hear me? <laughs> But can I say that is not what Genesis 3.16 is about. It is a reference to all the physical and emotional pain that a mom experiences, not just in the birth, but in the rearing of the children to adulthood. You know, the sleepless nights during the first few months, the fretting over the bumps and bruises and broken bones that happen along the way, the tears she sheds over the hard-heartedness and rebellion of her children, the, the sting of ingratitude that all of her hard work and sacrifice would go unnoticed. That's the pain. That's the pain. I'll increase your pain. Now, when the Old Testament was translated into Greek in the Septuagint, the word they chose to use in Genesis 3.16 for the pain the woman would experience was of the same root as the word that Jesus uses here for tribulation in Matthew 24. I mean, this is the perfect Mother's Day sermon. Right? As if that's not enough, look at verse 8. Jesus says, all these things are but the beginning of birth pains. There you go. It's settled. This is a passage about motherhood. Motherhood is full of inexpressible joy and deep delight, but it's also full of pain, and you can't have one without the other. I mean, the job description for moms, if you're young and you're a lady, maybe you're just married, the job description for a mom, pain. The moms are nodding. Amen. Right? Trouble. 
Tribulation. Now think about it. Think about it. Moms, the scars on your body or on your heart are the badges of your motherhood. I mean, Ashley, we had to stop having kids just because I didn't think Ashley's body could make it through another pregnancy. I mean, you know, her hair begins to fall out and clog the drains in our house. I mean, she literally, I'm not kidding, she has a hernia from, from, from so violently vomiting. You know, and I used to be just, oh, my, I can't believe this. And she would tell me, and, and I've since read, you know, she would vomit so violently because her hormone levels were so high. They were raging in her body. But the thing is, is the more hormones, the better it is for the baby, right? And so th- this is how cruel this is, moms. You know, this is, this is a picture of the gospel right here. The very thing that the baby needs the most to be healthy and grow is like a toxin in your system. And so you have to suffer and deal with all kinds of physical and emotional and hormonal pain just so the baby can have what it needs. You live, I mean, excuse me, you die so the baby can live. And that's just the way it works. And then they're born and it gets worse. And teenagers, if you're confused... I'm speaking the truth. You just need to go talk to your mom and dad about it later. Because the teenagers are like, what is, what is he talking about? So moms, thank you. But this is not just a passage about motherhood. It's not true of just motherhood. We live in a fallen world that's been ravaged by sin. That is but the theater for a cosmic battle between the spiritual forces of good and evil. And so what else should we expect? Jesus says there's going to be tribulation. But secondly, and I need to pick it up a little bit. This is a call also to faithfulness in the middle of the tribulation. And it's just this. If you look there in verse 12. It is that we would endure. Verse 13. So the command that Jesus gives us is to endure. And it's a compound word in the Greek that literally means to remain under or to put up with or to stick with it no matter how hard it is. Jesus is saying it's going to be hard. Don't give up. Don't quit. Don't lose your courage. Keep going no matter how hard it gets. It's not a sprint. It's a marathon. Whatever way you want to put it. Jesus' point is it's going to be hard. Don't try to find a way out because there is no way out. Push through it, stomach it, weather it, outlast it, brave it, survive it. Because that's the mark of genuine faith in Jesus. Verse 13. One of the fruits of the Spirit is patient. Long su- patience, long-suffering, willingness to bear with hardship, push through in a project or in a relationship. And that's, that's the mark of an experience of grace. Not a well-intentioned beginning, but you don't quit. You don't quit on people. You don't quit on projects. You count the cost, which is what... He's trying to help us do, and then you put, you see it through to the end until the work is done, no matter how hard it is and no matter what it takes. And moms, can I get an amen? That's what good mothering is, right? I mean, how many times do you have to say, pick your clothes up off the floor? Right? I mean, how many times? The, the key to all good discipline is actually constantly has to remind me is consistency. The reason she has to remind me that is because I think short-term, not long-term, and if it gets hard in the short-term, I surrender. Right? The kid keeps getting out of the bed. You want the kid to stay in the bed, so you have to keep taking the kid back to their bed and spanking him or whatever, maybe ten times. After two, I'm done. Forget it. Just sit down. Let's watch a movie. Have some popcorn. I can't, you know, I can't. I just can't. I can't do it. Right? But if you stick with it, If you don't give up, if you don't give in, if you keep to your guns, the kid will stay in bed. But that's what's so, that is what is so hard about parenting. It's so constant. They're there every day when you wake up. Typically like staring right at you as you open your eyes. It is 24-7. And it's so easy to grow weary of doing the same thing over and over again day after day. But you have to. You have to. Because it's the only way to turn kids into adults. 
It's what, what, what's required is what Eugene Peterson, and I love this phrase, he calls it a long obedience in the same direction. We have a 100-year vision for the city of Winter Haven. We're in year three. There are hundreds of sermons still to be preached, thousands of kids' worship classes to be had, community groups that need to be created, dozens of churches we need to get started on, but it's going to take a long time. It's a multi-generational vision for our city and county because we believe that sin is so rampant and so entrenched that the work is going to be that hard, and it isn't going to happen overnight. It's going not, probably not going to happen even in my lifetime. We need a long obedience in the same direction. That's the right response. Endure. Endure until he comes. But then there are two wrong responses, and I just want to highlight them quick. And the first is just this. If you look in verse 6, Jesus says, don't be alarmed. Don't be alarmed. If, if the right response is to endure, then, then one of the wrong responses is that you would become alarmed, verse 6. Don't be alarmed. Endure. In other words, don't let the wars and the earthquakes and all the threat of financial collapse whip you up into a frenzy. Don't let all of the doomsday talk cause you to do irrational things. Don't start building shelters out in the backyard and filling them with Pop-Tarts and freeze-dried ice cream, okay? Don't do that. Don't do that. I mean, one way to respond to all the trouble is to become neurotic, to lock the doors and stay inside and wait it out. And Jesus is saying, no, don't do that. Don't be alarmed. Don't be afraid. It's a warning against hyper-spiritualizing things, turning every flat tire into a demonic strategy to thwart God's plan in your life. Sometimes it's just a flat tire. You know, there was a nail in the road. You know, don't make too much out of the trouble. Don't maximize it. Don't allow it to dominate the horizon of your imagination. If you do, you won't endure. That's, that's the point. You'll get so discouraged, you'll grow cynical and full of self-pity, pity, and you'll lose sight of God's ability to work. See, if you're hysterical, if you're in a constant state of alarm, you've forgotten that God is in control. That's what Jesus says in verse 6. He says, see to it that you're not alarmed. Look there. For this must take place. And that little phrase reminds us that no matter how bad it gets, God's at work. The earth is still in the palm of his hand, and he is patiently carrying out his purposes. Even wars and political unrest and natural disasters are part of his carrying out his purposes in Christ Jesus. And that's why you can endure that no matter what kind of trouble or pain you're having to go through, God has sent it to you, and he plans to use it for your good. And the issue Jesus seems to have here is that if you're alarmed, if you're If you're hysterical, you won't discern rightly. You'll be very susceptible to religious hype. Jesus says that there's going to be lots of prognosticating about whether, when and where of the second coming. And some will rise up and say, hey, look, there's the Christ. And don't go out. You know, he says, don't go out there. You know, May 21st, 2011, the Bible guarantees it. He says, don't get caught up in the hype. Just be faithful. And if he comes back on, be faithful. Live today as if he can come back tomorrow. And then it won't matter. When he comes, don't lose your head. Study the scriptures. But then on the other side, so one wrong response is to maximize it, but then the other response, the other wrong response is to minimize it. He says, secondly, verse 12, don't let your love grow cold, endure. Don't underestimate. Don't be naive. Don't make so little, don't make so little of all the trouble that you're not diligent. Don't fall asleep and neglect the means of grace and spiritual disciplines. If you do, then before you know it, the hardship and the pain of life will cause your heart to shrivel up and you won't endure, you'll quit. And the expression he uses in verse 12 is your heart will grow cold. You'll become apathetic and unfeeling. The exact opposite of hyper-spiritualizing, right? I mean, you'll have no spiritual sensibility at all. You'll lose all of your motivation and desire for spiritual things. And then if you do that, then then you won't do what Jesus tells us to do and that is proclaim widely. And so here's the summary, okay? The summary of all that I have to say. The way you endure, 
through the trouble is on the one hand to have a clear estimation of what you're up against. And then above and beyond that, to know that Jesus' power and his love for you is greater than anything that's set against you. Okay? To know, on the one hand, to have a clear and accurate estimation of what you're up against. And then above and beyond that, to know that Jesus' power and love for you is greater than anything that's set against you. And so the third point, are you hysterical in a panic? Or are you cold and apathetic and loveless? I mean, if you're full of fear and need courage, if you're cold and apathetic, you need a heart and need a heart warmed by God's love. Both of these ha- things happen when you consider the promises that, that, is, that is at the end of the passage in Matthew 24, 33. And Jesus says in verse 33 there that when you see all of these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Friends, he's coming again, and when he comes, there will be no more tribulation, for he will do away with wickedness and make all things new. But even as we wait and look and pray, this passage offers us a wonderful promise. He is near. He's not gone far off. He's not on vacation. He doesn't take breaks and go into the back room and sip on coffee while things just careen out of control. On the earth, Philippians 4, 6, the Lord is at hand, Paul says. And then what's the next thing? The Lord is at hand. Don't be anxious, but pray. He is at the right hand of the Father in heaven, and the Bible tells us he's ruling all things for our sake and offering up prayers of intercession for us. So if you're in the middle of a trouble that is too much to bear and you're tempted to lose heart and give up, or if you're in such pain that you're tempted to say in your heart, where is God? This verse assures you he's not far away. He's not forgotten about you. He loves you. He sees your pain, and he's coming to do something about it. But until he comes, he sent the Spirit into the world and into the heart, into your heart. And so if you want to know just how near he is, he's in you. Could he get any nearer than that? If your faith is in Jesus Christ, then the promise of the gospel is not only that he died for your sins and rose again and ascended to the Father, but in the person of the Holy Spirit, he has come into your life into the very inward parts of your soul to be with you. He's near. And so until he comes, we wait. We discern rightly. We get to work proclaiming widely. And we endure, knowing that he's not far away. He's at the door. Okay, let's pray. Lord Jesus, help us today as we contemplate the trouble uh, the trouble that we face. I, I, pray, I pray that you not uh, not allow us to go and begin to sing the old spiritual, nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Uh, because we, we have a common sense of tribulation and trouble that we face as your people. And yet, I think the words of that song are true because it goes on to say, nobody knows the trouble I've seen, nobody knows but Jesus. Lord Jesus, thank you for the promise that you are near and that even though things seem to be out of control and beyond fixing, that you promise that if we would wait and endure, that you are coming again. And when you come again, you will judge wickedness and put it down, and you will rescue us as your people, and you will make all things new. And it is our hope, even in the present, as we wait and long and pray and watch, that you would come. And so we pray with John at the end of our scriptures from the book of Revelation. Even so, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. But until then, grant to us the powerful move of your spirit to make us faithful to the work that you've called us even while we wait. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. I do pray that you all have a very happy Mother's Day today celebrating your mothers, moms, or even if you're not a mom, dads, friends, whatever you would be.
uh, if you are tempted to quit, uh, don't quit. Endure with the promise that Jesus is coming again, hopefully very soon, to rescue us. But until he comes, the promise is just that, that we can rejoice because even in his absence, he is near in the person of the Spirit who lives inside of us and empowers us towards the mission. And so that's the promise of the benediction, uh, that if your faith is in Jesus Christ, then even as you wait for him to come, you can live under the promise and the provision of his blessing and power in the person of the Holy Spirit. And that's exactly what these words are meant to convey. So receive this, that you might push through the tribulation and the pain and the sorrow that you feel uh, to endure, that he might be glorified in you. May you. May you receive this blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace. Happy Mother's Day.